Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Film. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Think about the last few films you saw. Is it your experience that they usually included food in some way? In his book, Food on Film, Bringing Something New to the Table, Tom Hertwick of the University of Nevada, Reno, brought together 14 essays from a variety of writers who discussed many aspects of eating, food, and film. The book was published in 2014 by Roman and Littlefield. Tom talks about his process of finding prospective authors, as well as the various themes he developed from the essay. Welcome to Tom Hartwick. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm very well, and you? Not bad at all. Of course, we're recording on a Friday, which is, for most of us, is probably a good day to be doing something a little less, you know, than regular work. So that's fine. It's (laughs) true. When I began reading your collection of essays, Food on Film, it occurred to me that I can't think of many movies where at least some place in that movie somebody is eating. Even if it's minor, even if it has nothing to do with the plot, it happens. Even Star Wars features the occasional meal. But before we get more in detail with the book, let's talk a little bit about your background. What's your educational history and what in particular with your research has led you to decide to write about food and film? As with most people, I think I... I started in one thing and ended up in another. I actually started off uh, as an undergraduate at Purdue, uh, wanting to be a chemical engineer. I was absolutely certain that that was, that was going to be the future for me. So instead of doing that, much to pretty much everyone's dismay, I ended up going into literature after I had uh, decided that I didn't want to spend my life under fluorescent lights doing process and reactor analysis. So uh, ended up going into literature uh, in large part because of a class that I, I took with Kip Robish at Purdue on desert and mountain literature. And even within literature, started off in something that maybe I'm not doing as much anymore, which is environmental literature. I stayed on at Purdue to do my master's in American studies, uh, where I had an emphasis in environmental policy and environmental literature And then applied to the University of Nevada, Reno's um, very well-known literature and environment program for my PhD, but then somehow ended up writing this food dissertation that doesn't have much to do with the environment, though one could argue has everything to do with the environment. Um, But nonetheless, sort of self-taught film criticism and became interested in the ways that that film as as a cultural currency has a lot to say about about how we interact with the world. So it seemed an essential component of, of something that I wanted to continue doing. Well, it, it, I think you're right. I think most of the, the, the material we become really interested in is the kind of thing that often just sneaks up and grabs us. And frankly, you're right. I think food as part of the environment is an important aspect. And it's interesting that you uh, were doing environmental literature, which, of course, it's much more technical when people think literature. Sometimes I think they're thinking poetry and creative writing where um, the other people who write, even in nonfiction, they need to know how to write as well. 
Yeah, well, it's funny that we're in a we're in an interesting state in terms of how how food studies as a as an interdisciplinary um, arena is now uh, taking lots and lots of cues from lots and lots of different disciplines. And it it's been my opinion, I think, the opinion of some others, like Amy Bentley, the food historian, that uh, literature has actually been a little slow to to get working on how these things work. And that would include, to some extent, um, work in, in film, given film's uh, relationship with, with literature as it started sort of back in the 60s and 70s. So... Um, I still think there's a lot of technical stuff in food that has to be that has to be sorted out too, and it's why that so much of the good work in, in food history comes from historians who understand uh, processes of globalization and production and so on and so forth, and then they all become good friends with people like you know Marion Nestle, who's a, a nutritionist. So, so we've got a collection of 14 essays that uh, you pulled together from a variety of different writers, but what got to this point, I mean, how did this collection come about? In the in the acknowledgement of the book, you mentioned the annual Film and History Conference. And I have to admit, I've talked to a number of the uh, Film and History authors, um, including Cindy and yeah. a number of other people. But what led you into that and where, did you, where were you able to bring your ideas to a published work? It, this, again, it's one of those funny things where I was doing one thing and then it became another thing. I, I am, have been absolutely uh, delighted by the community of people who work through the film and history uh, conference and who are involved with um, the journal. And that it is probably one of the warmest conferences that you can go to. And so years ago, God, I'd say it was probably uh, the first time I went was in 2008, I think. And I went thinking I was going to be doing some work on environmentalism and consumer choice by looking at Soylent Green uh, found a great forum for people who are totally interested in that kind of work. Uh, obviously, Soylent Green is as much a, a food film as it is a, an environmental film. And so at that time, Film and History was a biennial conference. I said, you know, these people are so damn nice. I'm going to see if I can put together uh, something of my own so I can sort of make a larger contribution to this and ended up putting together um, a panel on uh, what ended up being uh, food as a as a rubric of interest there, and just just found a, a wonderful collection of people who were interested in that sort of thing, and and what a broad uh, level of interest. So they were able to bring immediately uh, a large number of ideas that I thought, man, this could really this could really do something and make a make it make this work. So the yeah, the bulk of the the book originally came from the conference. Um, and that were expansions of those conference papers. And the, the other essays that filled out uh, came from connections that I had and, uh, and a call for papers that I put out for in a couple of different locations. And that usually leads to the question I like to ask editors because the story is different for every editor. Sure. Uh, I think I'm one of those folks because my first career was a libra- is a librarian. My second career is a historian. Um, and in that way, I like to ask some of the background information on how a book is put together. Even a, sure. And whenever you're talking about edited collections, you want to know. You know, it's the old. It's even similar to the fiction writer, where you say, "Where do you get your ideas?" It's the same idea. Um, how did you get the authors together? Now, you obviously mentioned that some of them were people you were working with at the at the conference, but then you also reached out. Did you already more or less have an idea for what you wanted? What kind of subjects you were looking for writers for or 
Was it more of a matter that you had to go the other direction as far as putting the book together based on what you were getting? It was, it was a little bit of both. I had part of my interest in, in food as it relates to film has to do with the extent to which there are a couple of books about uh, food and film. The, the number one among them is, is um, Ann Bowers and hers very smart. And even everybody else working in, in all of uh, food film, as I like to think of it just in shorthand is this, are these people who want to focus on the ways that food already just shows up right in the front of a movie. So you can get a handy list of those, those movies that, that grab those people's attention very quickly off the internet by typing in food and film. And you'll get, uh, 50 films that show up over and over again on these lists like Choco Lot and so on and so forth. All the movies that people know and love. And there's nothing wrong with those movies. They're fantastic movies. Uh, one that comes up over and over again, Big Night, is probably in my top five favorite movies of all time. And so I said, these are great movies, but it's strange to me that, as you said at the beginning of this, I think people notice this. Food shows up in one way or another in every single film tv show and so on and so forth if there's a if there's people interacting there's often food there and the the simple response for that is a is a practical filmmaking problem which is to say people in a room talking is not super interesting but people in a room eating suddenly adds action to a scene that could otherwise just be dialogue and so i say to myself well what if we what if we actually took seriously all of these these other moments in food that show up in film and try and find ways of understanding these, these broader concerns that filmmakers are able to embed consciously or otherwise um, in their, in their films and in television shows and things like this. So this was a, this was a, an ideological stance. If you want to call it that it was a, it was a critical response to the extant uh, bibliography of food film studies. And I said, okay, well, we can do something with that. And it just turned out that the people who got involved with the conference were actually very much already on that path. I think there are a lot of people who given the widespread interest in food culture in the United States today, um, there are already lots of people who are just saying like, Oh, there's my favorite food in the TV show. Even if the show is not about that thing. So that's how that began. And it was serendipitous that so many of the people who were involved with the conference were already working in that direction. And so when I had those, I think at the, the point at which I was ready to give out a CFP, we already had 10 of the 14 essays sort of locked in. And I said, well, this is fantastic. This is uh, this gives us a good structure. And so the CFP went out and said, all right, what we basically need are people who are doing interesting work in these broad categories that were then, at that point, the, the sections of the book itself. It's interesting, just where you were discussing, you know, your overall train of thought with the whole project, I thought of two things that were both interrelated. When you, when you look at the list of films where food is important, is, is, is one of them, and maybe it's not, is the the Godfather and its use of oranges all over the place does that the three you know, Godfather films does that come up regularly? It's funny, right? Because that's you know that is the, the oranges are are littered in that film, and they're in all those great moments when he's when he's scaring his uh, his grandkids out in the out with the the, um, the insect sprayer, and he puts one in his mouth, and then ends up having the heart attack. Right? Is that what happens? I haven't seen the Godfather yeah. in years now. Um, it's funny though that. And this is this is just the way the tendencies in the in this sort of uh, vein of criticism work is that people are much more attached to say the identity politics of Italian food and 
uh, the stereotypes that are associated with Italian Americans and say spaghetti or something. And so you get this when you go out and read all those responses to the Sopranos, which is obviously uh, a show about Italian Americans, but is also right there on the surface. They're always, always, always eating in that show. So all of those, those controversies that had to do with the Sopranos when that show came out, is this a stereotype? Is this an interesting way to engage with Italian American identity? They wanted to point at just things that were right front and center. And so the oranges, the oranges would be a great way to expand, say the, the ways that we look at the Godfather, because it's not necessarily something that you would, you would expect to think about in relationship to the Godfather, despite the fact that everybody can, can pull up those images. Of course, the other thing is each of the three Godfather films starts with a celebration. Oh, yeah. The, the, before the third one came out, the, the biggest deal was the fact that Godfather 1 starts with a wedding reception and Godfather 2 starts with the first communion party. Yeah. And yet the food is completely different at the second one. It's more of a <laughs> of a more of a Anglo, you know, in American meal. And in fact, one of the characters at one point says something to the effect of not being able to find any. Yeah, lasagna or something like that. So uh, obviously the food, the the you know Coppola and and the other people involved in the films were trying to make a point there as well. Yeah, and this is this you know assimilation as an issue having to do with identity is actually a lot harder to deal with in film in some ways because of the it's one of those things that that doesn't appear directly on the surface. You have to go looking for the sort of the traces of it, and so in that. In that instance, right, their relationship to Italian food is an absence that then can only be spoken rather than them walking around the, and t- commenting on food that then they're also eating in the performance. So that's a that's a really, a really compelling way of thinking about this stuff. The Big Night being in a movie about Italian-American food is is one of those kinds of films that worries about issues of assimilation because it presents us with a scene of the 1950s where somebody – in one restaurant has been making food that um, we now recognize as being sort of stereotypically Italian. And it looks a little bit like a Buca di Beppo inside of it. And at the other end of the street, there are these two Italian brothers who are making, I mean, very low key um, traditional Italian foods that hadn't yet been assimilated into American culture. So they're making things like risotto. And then the, in the opening scene, the people who are in the restaurant wonder why they don't get a side of spaghetti with their risotto and the, the chef loses it. I sometimes wonder with now that food has become so important uh, for purposes, for better ways of putting it, you know, there's food network, just multiple food networks, multiple networks that cover food in the so-called documentary or reality TV style that I'm just wondering now if people are more aware of it just because it's a bigger part of the culture so that when they see it in a film, um, they think about it differently than they might have, say, 20 years ago when maybe it wasn't so much a part of their minds as to the different types of food that could be out there. Yeah. Some of this I think is, I mean, my, my own work in literature outside of, outside of film is in the ways that we interact with food as a commodity rather than something that's just that we sort of long for nostalgically as being home cooked or something, but saying that, you know, especially after world war two, but especially, especially after the, the, the ramping up of processed foods in the late eighties and nineties, what we get is a culture that's actually pun intended hungry for an interesting relationship with how we eat. Because if you just transfer that relationship into something that you go out and buy and sell, that's not the same relationship as, as trying to figure out, um, you know, what should I eat tonight? What are the things 
that uh, I need to do to feed myself if I wanted to cook my own food. So there's the food culture uh, writ large is having this this discussion uh, in an interesting sort of way. And so like the way that you, you say that we get this on different networks, um, that relationship gets parsed out by what uh, Fred Kaufman and others have talked about as food pornography, that you get this really like this really like orgiastic expression of how food is produced and the, the, the sort of horrifying close-ups of food and the chefs, you know, putting a little bit in their mouth and just ooing and eyeing over these sorts of things that those get juxtaposed with say some of the, the cooking proselytization of people like Jamie Oliver and uh, even early Gordon Ramsay, when he was doing the F word series in Britain, um, that they would have these responses by saying like, you know, no, you need to get back in your kitchen. You need to, you know, cook your own meals. You need to do all this stuff. And it's something people like, you know, the food writer, Michael Pollan has picked up on his own to say like, you know, you should probably only eat food that you, you would cook for yourself on a regular basis. And so there are these relationships with commodity culture, relationships with consumerism, but also relationships with, with how we feel about how we, how we feed ourselves, which are then uh, ridden with guilt if you're the kind of person who doesn't cook, um, but also at the same time as it always has been an expression of your identity. So basically, well, not basically, it's the way it is. You've got, <clears throat> excuse me, you've got five sections, five parts in the book yeah. for the 14 essays. You start with an introduction where you try to bring everything, well, you do bring everything together as to what you are trying to show in the various essays. But what I find interesting is that part one, which is you call first courses, you talk about new directions in food and film. So you're really almost starting at the end, at the beginning, by deciding, well, let's talk about current a little bit more before we go back and look at some of the... Uh, some of the historical materials that uh, uh, that we're going to talk about in some of the other parts, but you want to say, okay, how are we looking at food nowadays, and what's different? So, what kind of points did you come that did you feel came out of these initial essays in part one? Well, I mean, the the, the, the there was a, a real real uh, desire to to try and avoid as many food puns as possible. I'd originally. Um, wanted to put this together as a, as a menu, which I thought was not going to work. It was going to be too cute. And then Jennifer Conyard black and uh, Melissa Goldthwaite put together this fantastic anthology that actually is a menu. So I, ah, I could have had something, could have had something I had, I had, had done uh, that would have looked worse than there. So I'm glad I escaped that, that peril. Uh, the thing that I'm really struck by, uh, by these first essays is that they take, um, what we understand of as sort of extant dialogues in, in food and film and sort of give it a little twist to say, you know, we don't have to do this the way that you would expect. So Elizabeth Buck's essay that starts the collection, I think is absolutely emblematic of that kind of work of being able to take something that if you gave it to say undergraduates and said, tell me about how food works in here, their response would be like, well, you know, it's a rat making, you know, French food and that's kind of crazy, you know, but it's a kid's movie. So that's okay. And what she did was to say, what if we read this through the, the lens of rhetoric and take seriously the fact that what is at the center of this movie is not necessarily food, but a relationship to food writing. So the film gives us uh, Anton Ego, who is this, uh, you know, vindictive sort of hate filled restaurant 
critic. Of course, the film is Ratatouille. Right, yes, Ratatouille. <laughs> Not everyone has seen it, though they should. Uh, and he is uh, he's out to get basically everybody um, who's ever had anything to think about, anything good to think about, happy memories with food. He has this very severe look, and so it looks like a character out of a Bergman film. And he, he ends up getting one over, and the film's sort of greatest expression of how food works is this long um, voiceover of his review of his experience eating this food. And it's wrapped up in how nostalgia works. And so nostalgia is certainly uh, present in a lot of what we think of as cultural food studies. But this is to say nostalgia has bears this very special relationship to food because of the very weird constraints that food criticism as a genre of writing uh, puts on the writer, which is you only really eat one, two, maybe three times at this restaurant. This now has to stand in for all experience. Um, um, Elizabeth Buck takes up some pretty good, interesting stuff about how um, the culture of food writing is itself a pretty suspect proposition uh, and, and points out the ways in which there are all these slippages that, you know, some restaurant reviewers like, uh, Ruth Reichel, she would go and show around and go in disguises and things like this. So this is to say, it's a, and no one would doubt that Ratatouille is a food movie. My God, it has the name of a food in the title. And you say like, all right, what can we do with that? You say, actually, we can push this a lot farther than just saying, oh, it's about chefs and cooking. You can actually do some more interesting things. That same that same thread runs through these three essays. Uh, it's very easy uh, in Mark Stefano's essay to get bound up by saying like, oh, that these films that he points out uh, in his essays on these Filipino films that we just read the, the, uh, the foods that are in those films for the ways that they demonstrate Filipino identity. And he says, actually, no, we can take this a little bit deeper, too, and say that the relationship that gay male filmmakers and stories about gay men in the Philippines um, actually use food in a different way, even in terms of how uh, Filipinos might view them. Same thing in uh, Lynn Hilditch's essay about um, British life documentaries of the 30s and 40s is to say, sure, we live in an era where um, we love to watch food documentaries, Food Inc., Fresh, all of these documentaries get lots and lots of views in classrooms and by people at home who are worried about what they eat. Um, But she says, The documentary, uh, as far as the British were concerned, especially during the war era, was a way of manifesting British culture, of supporting something that uh, was necessary in order to keep people's spirits high. And so her interest in reading those documentaries for um, their vision of tea culture, how people would take a cup of tea, um, gives us a sense of the longer history of, of how food lives within documentary and the documentary tradition. Yeah, I, I, I understand. They, they, those three essays really did bring in a really good way to start, as I sit from my reading of them, because you introduced the topic just to say, here's some ways to look at this before we go into some of these other ways. This, we're going to use the, here's a pun, it Uh-oh. whets your appetite for <laughs> the, uh, the following chapters where you may get into more specific subjects, but it's a good way to start because people might have seen these films or some or some of the films mentioned may not have thought of it the same way. And the essay does a good job. These essays do a good job of giving us a different point of view. Yeah. And I, I'm very happy to have had, I mean, 
the the sorts of visions that these that these first writers had. I was delighted that they came up, and so um, neither Mark and Lynn were part of the original uh, the um, the original conference panels, and so that was a, a happy thing to find these really just like interesting essays that would come out of the ether that shows you that there's this broader interest in the way that we understand food and film uh, that already exists out there. And it was it was really heartening to have that. I'm I'm very happy to have had them uh, be included. So then in part two, we get into more specifics. And in this particular case, part two is food in African-American films. Yeah. And unlike the first, I mean, you tend to, it, I don't remember specifically whether it was just do the right thing in the, first, in the Spike Lee films, but you've got the first one is about Spike Lee's essays, or excuse me, films and use of food. And then we had the comedy hood and then the color purple. So yes. you've got a pretty, I mean, even within the, the genre of African-American films, you've got a pretty eclectic mix there. Uh, uh, what kind of similarities did you find between the three? Or were they just so different from each other that, but still showed an interesting twist on, on food and film? Yeah, the, the, the thing that I felt really compelled by about this, and this, this signals, you know, a desire that I have to work in this in this vein in particular uh, in the future, which is that there seemed to have been a time in, in film studies, at least as far as I'm concerned, maybe other people would argue with me about this, but that um, the study of representations of African-Americans in film and films made by African-Americans was very strong. And then that energy seemed to become more diffuse. And I don't know if that's because of people's interest in looking at other, other aspects of American culture or something to, to energize how they would engage, you know, rubrics of blackness in the United States. I don't know. Um, but I said, you know, it seems very important to me, given the amount of work that people have put into trying to understand, say, these large categories of soul food or the controversies that seem to come up every year uh, about whether or not, um, quote unquote, black foods signify relationships with racism going uh, into, say, like the Chappelle show. The reason he left his show was because he had an interest in not perpetuating stereotypes that seem to be directly related to food. Uh, and so he mentions that when he talks about it. Same thing just a couple of years ago in the NBC canteen uh, in New York City during um, during Black History Month, a chef had put up a, a, res- a menu for everyone in the NBC building to, to choose from that said in honor of Black History Month and then listed fried chicken, greens, etc. And Questlove, the drummer from The Roots on um, – Jimmy Fallon show. He tweeted this picture out and said, what's going on NBC and said, I think he, he tweeted the hashtag HR saying this seems like a problem. And as it turns out to, to make this more complicated, it was an African-American chef in there who had put this together, who had said, you know, I, I want to actually honor this tradition. And so all of these things become more complicated. So I say, well, film's a way to, to allow us to engage in, in ideas of African-American identity in order to work up how soul food works. And it's very strange to me. Um, so the sort of synergies that come from these essays that are very uh, different in terms of what their, their films are. So uh, Deborah Edelman, uh, instead of coming at this directly as an issue about African-Americans, uh, has a lot more to say about um, the idea of the food desert and applies it to Spike Lee's film because everybody remembers the pizza place. You know, they remember that, but they don't necessarily think of it as being part of a systemic problem in American culture that the pizza place that exists in Do the Right Thing is the only place um, for these characters to eat, it seems, unless they want to go buy 
you know, processed foods off the shelf at the, at the grocery store. That's or not even the real grocery. It's basically one of those like uh, small convenience stores that you get in, in urban areas. Um, the same thing with uh, Jessica Fantasel and Josh Culpepper's essays is essay is that they want to take up um, these particular representations in African-American comedies, especially of the nineties and early two thousands and the ways that we might think of as sort of a, Soul food enters into representation in these things, but every time it shows up, it seems to subjugate women. Um, and again, that those sorts of issues of subjugation get picked up and turned a little bit more different uh, in Lynn Johnson's essay when she wants to pick up how the characters in The Color Purple actually feel a great deal of, of shame and that they use food in order to um, – just just place abjection on all these other characters here. So the the affective energies of these uh, essays, I think, are the surprising through line that uh, drive a lot of the a lot of the similarities there. Despite the fact that they exist over a, a sort of a, a wide range of of, um, of representations of African American life, though I think it would be interesting to say that all of these films sort of come out within I don't know about a fifteen year time span. If you uh, use the color purple and do the right thing as sort of the starting point of that. Right. Um, it's interesting because you mentioned that uh, the issue of the NBC canteen. Yeah. And one of my favorite television shows of all time is Hill Street Blues. Oh, yeah. And I still remember an episode. It was in the third. In fact, that I know all this so closely. <laughs> it was a third season episode where the Latino uh, lieutenant was being honored as the uh, Latino uh, man of the year, and they served Mexican food. Oh my him. god! And it, when he comes up to accept his award, he complains because he says, "Number one, I'm not even Mexican; I'm Colombian." Nobody oh, checked. Um, and they also said that the only the only people of Latino descent he sees are the waiters and the busboys. Oh, so man. that was back in 1983. And so the concepts it's it's it is depressing that in. You know, in a real life situation, many years later, the same thing is still going. It still goes on. Yeah, what a what a fantastic uh, inner text. I mean, the same thing right happens with Tiger Woods uh, when he wins right. the Masters. It was uh, that they the racist comment was it? I don't want to say who it was because I don't remember off the top of my head. I think I, I, well, I don't want to say it either. Wrong. I think I know, but I, without checking it, I'd rather not. <laughs> I have to look it up to make sure. I don't want to don't want to slander anybody. The uh, the, For all the golfers will be listening to this. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but the, the idea was somebody said, well, like, you know, now we're all going to have fried chicken next right. year, right? Because the winner of the Masters gets to choose the menu for the following year's uh, celebration dinner. And, right, we – the this is a – it's a trouble and an interest and a very bizarre experience that I have with my students. And it's exactly the same issue that I think um, Chappelle had in, a, in sort of a different valence, but that um, – I have a lot of students who don't know a lot of stereotypes about, say, African-American food culture. And so that when we start covering them or we start talking about these relationships to, say, chitlins, uh, then they get represented in novels like uh, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, that I'm in some ways helping them learn stereotypes and that that perpetuates a kind of culture. But at the same time, there seems to be a, a desperate need to hang on to the way in which those foods do signify uh, a level of hatred or shame that can be applied to people. So when Chappelle left his show, he said it was because he saw a man laughing at a representation of soul food in a way that made him feel really uneasy. 
that it was a white guy in the audience who was having a real good laugh about a character who was seeing um, another character respond uh, in a very stereotyped uh, blackface minstrel way to the offer of catfish and fried chicken. And Chappelle said, I don't like the way that guy was laughing, there was something about me that presumably came from his um, long relationship uh, with being a black American uh, of having, of being oppressed and having been uh, uh, in positions where he responds to people who are, are uh, negatively responding to things that he himself might like. So he said, I quit. So he went to Africa as has been well-documented and he said, that's why I leave the show. And he gave back $50 million and that's a that's an intense response to to say that. So to say that he's worried about teaching those stereotypes uh, is certainly a very real problem. But at the same time, you want to be able to critique those. You want to be able to find the the language to help us understand uh, how hate can be perpetuated through symbols and signification and figures in the ways that filmmakers put them together. Of course, it's probably important that. So much of what we call what would might be called soul food, as good as it might have been, as far as it was well prepared as the people who who made it made it. The bottom line is the reason it exists is because these were the the leftovers, so to speak. The, right. The the slaves, and then in the future they had to deal with because that's all they had, and it was it tended to be the worst parts of the of the animals or the worst parts of the of the vegetables, and they had to figure out. How yeah. do we make this edible? Yeah, I mean, and the, and you know, talk about somebody who was interested in this. Chappelle himself uses that, I think, in the uh, in the beginning of the second season, uh, as a metaphor for the the evening that they show all of the clips that didn't make it into into the regular shows. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, black people are used to doing this sort of thing because we used to have to eat the snout. And so he said, all of these clips that we're showing you, we're eating all snout tonight. And I said, this is fantastic. This is somebody who plainly understands how this this longer history functions. And so when he leaves the show and then says, this is the reason, I go, I can't blame the guy. He plainly understands it much more deeply than lots of other people. So then we go from this, and when we get into part three, we're talking now about non-American films. Um, yes. Once again, you've got three essays. Uh, one of them's about a specific film. And then the other two about more general, one is uh, Japanese post-war and the other is Korean films. Um, How did you see what kind of differences, if there were differences as far as what the authors of these essays found related to maybe how food is uh, characterized in American movies? Yeah, so the funny thing was that actually of the – when I put out the call that came out uh, much after the – after the the conference had already sort of laid out the basic structure of the book, um, what came in was this this lots and lots of work on international and non English film, and I was I was really struck by that. And there was a there was a, a short period of time where I thought, well, maybe I can do two collections sort of simultaneously. And I was just like, I've got far too much to do uh, to do that. But there's plainly a, a huge interest in in international and non English film and the way that they respond to these sorts of things. Uh, I Know though that in working with it, you have to you have to be very careful with some of this because you don't want to simply exoticize non-American food customs because that perpetuates certain kinds of uh, stereotypes in international communities and and so on and so forth. So uh, one of the things 
that came of this that I think is very strong is the way that these essays want to work very closely with particular ideas that could be applied to um, all film, but then narrowly focus. Uh, and that applies even in Chuck Hayford's case where his uh, essay works with lots of, lots of films, uh, but want to narrowly focus on how those ideas function as just threads that you want to follow. So memory Holloway's essay is a fantastic um, uh, look at how internal politics in Italy uh, produce tensions in this one film, Il Mafioso, which is a fantastically interesting uh, black and white film that, about the tension between North and South in Italy and the ways that people feel their Italianness that gets built around this fantastic lunch that gets served when uh, a man who'd been living uh, outside of Sicily returns with his very blonde wife to Sicily and she's sort of disgusted by this what would be sort of a version of, of Italian bumpkinness as far as she's concerned um, so that we get this particular regional tension that could be applied to, to films in the United States I mean one could imagine a list of films where say um, the fish out of water story right uh, that someone goes from say living a high fashion life in New York City and then moves to the South and so has to experience soul food or something that maybe that character hasn't experienced in their life. Um, a very common sort of narrative that then plays on though, these larger uh, political tensions in a, in a national context. And so it's interesting to see how that unfolds in Italy, uh, especially in the mid century era. Same thing with uh, Chuck Hayford. He picks up this thread um, and he wanted to think big, and I was happy for him to think big, is um, he wanted to say, I want to look at Japanese film after World War II and see if I can understand how these rubrics of home and of eating meals um, became important to the Japanese in ways that were very different from uh, the Hollywood depiction of home, which, at least in the United States, had been predicated on the the sense that home was to be defended, that you get that in the Western, uh, that you need heroes and things like this. These post-war films uh, for the Japanese, at least according to Chuck's essay, were about how one has these just very slight tensions at home, but that then as the years passed, uh, sort of snowball. So the, by the time you get to Tempopo, they just sort of explode and it's just chaos everywhere, uh, which I think is a very compelling way of, of taking apart a, a singular sort of thread within uh, a national film tradition. Uh, Dottie Hamilton works small and wants to do a comparative study of two different films, but in a way that I think is, is totally innovative to say that she wants to work with the two things that we can't get when we watch films, uh, which is we can't get smell and we can't get taste. So she wants to find a way to use these very um, rich, uh, richly flavored, as it were, uh, Korean films in order to understand how they can affectively uh, produce these feelings in, in viewers. And so uh, she works with some pretty intense stuff. I'll tell you that much. Um, <laughs> I don't want to spoil or anything for people if they're interested in looking for Korean films, but it's, a, it, it, I understand what you're saying about the interest in non-American films. And I think part of that is because we live in the golden age of being able to see films. 
Yeah. It's not in, it's very easy nowadays to see foreign or you know foreign films what we would call or international films because of the different ways that we can get material so that the opportunity to see some of these films is just unbelievable and it is a good way that we can get a better understanding of of the non-American um, issue or the non-American experience with food and and that's where I would think uh, the fact that this makes it a lot better because people now have the ability to see some of these films without a lot of trouble. Yeah, I mean, the the thing that I find really compelling about this, too, and this is not to identify a shortcoming with this, it's just to say that there's a need for more work in the area of international films, is that, uh, especially for Americans, given the extent to which Americans control the global agenda on how food is disseminated, produced, um, how food aid is given out uh, to different countries and things like this, and how um, that American politics uh, produce the the kinds of foods that people eat all over. I think there's a lot of room to be done in uh, international film just to talk about how globalization works. And some of the work that people, I think, will do in the future will be about how those those relationships between American ideas about food get forced onto or subverted by um, local identities. And so maybe the touchstone about that, talking about access to, to foreign films, I remember uh, when I was a kid, the one foreign film you could reliably get at um, sort of the, it wasn't even, it was before Blockbuster. What was it? It was a, it was basically a yard barn where we rented film, uh, movies on VHS. The one you could reliably get was the gods must be crazy. And Talk about a movie that's set in motion by globalization with the, the Coke bottle that appears in the Sand Tribesman's uh, village that they think is a gift from the gods, but then causes all these other problems and all those madcap adventures. Um, that's a, a way of parsing you know, resistance to Coke globalization, but also to say that nonetheless, the signification of Coke is a thing in the world that has to be taken into and then has um, important uh, valences and in, in resistance to uh, food globalization in India, uh, where there are Coke and Pepsi free zones now, where people say, "No, we want to control our food. We want food sovereignty." And then we get to part four, where we're talking about television. There's only two essays, but if you had said to me you were going to put together a couple of essays that dealt with food and television, <laughs> there's no question in my mind I would have been able to guess one of the two, and that's Twin Peaks. Yeah. Oh my God, how could you not talk about? Uh, just from almost the beginning of that film where we took <laughs> the donuts and then the pies and then this, we literally have scene after scene sometimes where you can't even understand the characters because they're talking with their mouth full of food. Yeah. Of course, in the other film or the other TV show, you you have an essay from a sex in the city, which I I'll admit I'd never watched the show. So I'm, I'm not as familiar <laughs> of how food fits into that part of the conversation, but what did you, I mean, you picked two really great examples, even without my real knowledge of Sex and the City, but because like I said before, I think there are probably lots of different examples, but you picked some pretty good ones. Where did television and these examples fall into this conversation of food on film? Yeah, I mean, here's, this is a, again where uh, eating is a practical way of of giving your characters something to do. And I think that if you don't, if you don't believe that, Go watch a daytime soap, as, as few of them that are left. Uh, go watch one, and you'll see that they don't use food. They're sort of the exception that proves the rule, that in those daytime soap operas, people just stand around talking to each other. 
And unless that's something that you were, I don't know, inculcated into as a, as a young child when you were bored during the summer or something, or that you just have an appeal for, for like sort of close-ups of people looking scared and stuff all the time, it's not going to appeal to you. But food becomes a, a conduit by which to produce action and scenes uh, that would otherwise just be flat dialogue and not be terribly interesting. And so both of these uh, TV shows do that in completely different ways. Uh, in the David Lynch example in Twin Peaks, it's absolutely the case that I think he was hyper aware of that. So he said, what can I do to subvert um, those sort of conventions about this? How can I turn this into a weird obsession that makes people feel hyper conscious of something that normally falls into the background? And so uh, Andy Hagman's essay is, is fantastic to that end and really feels the, the fan culture that uh, also related to Twin Peaks, that people want to go find the coffee shop, that they want to have the pie. Um, the, but the same thing functions within uh, Glenda Sachs' essay on Sex in the City. I'm, I'm absolutely struck um, that Sex in the City might be sort of the, the pinnacle of those shows that use a single restaurant in order to organize, uh, organize what's going on in a, in a TV show. So Seinfeld is another great example of that, that they go to, what was it? Tom's the, the diner where they would go in every episode. It's a place where you can reliably set a scene to allow people to work through content. So the same thing with sex in the city. She's um, the Sarah Jessica Parker character is absolutely invested in talking out these problems and getting all these different viewpoints from her girlfriends in order then to write about them later so that the consumption of conversation that Glenda points out in her essay becomes more important in some ways than the consumption of food. But then even within that, those uh, ideas of femininity and domesticity uh, are completely ruined in some ways that when um, some of the, those women who want to be career minded and who want to, to find ways to support themselves and be independent when they find themselves falling back on, on classic tropes of domesticity, they're disasters. So what does this say about say female professionalism in our day and age? Um, both of them, both of those essays have a lot to say about uh, how we respond to food in television. Uh, I could go on about Twin Peaks forever, as I think anybody who's ever seen it probably could, but uh, I don't know if we need to fanboy your podcast. No, that's okay. Unfortunately, <laughs> there's all the controversy going on right now as to whether we're going to get the Showtime version because David Lynch has pulled out of it. Because, right. Uh, right. <laughs> and I don't know whether that's a, it's a ploy to try to get more money or whether it's real, but uh, that would be unfortunate. Uh, I was thinking two things that you were mentioning. Um, one of the things, and this is sort of, you already really said this partway with the Sex and the City, is that one of the things that food does is it gives you the opportunity to have all the characters together. Yes. Uh, if you have a six-character, or in Seinfeld's case, four characters, it was not unusual to have all four of them in one place. It was an easy way to get everybody together. It's right. interesting. Not even the, I have to do it now that you can watch the thing ad infinitum on television if you watch it. There's very few scenes in Seinfeld, especially in either the in, in the apartment, where somebody is either isn't eating, looking for something to eat, looking for something to drink, or it's just a regular part. And I think it's just a, it's the busy work that becomes very easy to do in, yeah. in a situation like that. Yeah. And then, I'm, then going back to your soap opera point, I wonder how much of that is number one that soap operas tend to feature only two or three characters at a time. You very seldom get a bunch of them together. Ah. And 
how much of it's just because it's cheaper to not have food that <laughs> using food and I've read about uh, one television show where they talk about how the prop people have to make that food that they're using in yeah. these television shows and so there's cost and time factors involved maybe yeah it's it's funny to think about I mean I, I love thinking about food in the context of soap operas um, because right the, the soap operas as genre is meant not to be not to be watched you know, sort of in a sat down, concentrating sort of way. You're meant to just pass through the room maybe and and notice what's going on. And that's why they spend so much time repeating all that dialogue and that there's only about five minutes of new content in every episode so that you don't have to pay all that much attention to it. Um, and the the fact that the production schedule on those is sort of silly, that they have to they have to make so much content uh, that the prop people would be driven insane by it. At the same time, I'm also struck by uh, soap operas live in a very strange sort of world for people who are struggling actors in New York city. Right. Because if you get a walk on, on a soap opera, you are guaranteed whatever the day, whatever the day rate is. And then the, um, a sack lunch. Of course, now we come to the final section of the book, which in this case, the characters are the food and that's cannibalism, or as you call it, the oldest taboo taboo. Um, we have three essays again on, what are the what are the points of the authors making with with these essays, particularly with this whole issue of food on film? Um, this is a this was this was actually sort of a it was a a pet section of mine, if you can believe it, and it goes back to that original interest that I had in in Soylent Green. As I said, Soylent Green is a movie about food, and I think the statute of limitations is up on Soylent Green. If you haven't seen it now, then you can get it spoiled. Soylent Green is people. about spoiler merch. Most people know the phrase anyway. Yeah, <laughs> Soylent Green is people. And so it's funny. I even ask freshmen today who have no idea what I'm talking about. I ask what Soylent Green is, and they say it's people. And I go, do you have any idea what any of the words in that sentence mean? And I go, no. don't know what Soylent Green is. I don't know what it's people means. Um so that this it's pervasive in in culture, but I said, isn't it strange though? I mean that that's a, a vision of the future where that's food. So I said, okay, what do we what do we do with this? Are there other places where the idea of humans as food, so not cannibalism necessarily, but humans as food, um, become a way for us to rethink ideas having to do with food? And so the essays that 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 pull. Uh, together, these ideas in this section are are deeply invested in that question about what happens when we see human beings turned into food. So Mark Buskett's essay on Jaws, I think, is a fantastic way of breathing new life into a film that while it's super enjoyable to watch over and over again, that maybe the criticism on it has sort of has sort of fizzled out a little bit. And so to say anxieties about uh human beings becoming food is something that propels that story, but that Mark also read that within the rubric of a certain kind of Western to say that if you read this as a a Western, where instead of having a shootout, you're having somebody who's coming in to eat people in this town and that it's all complicated by the fact that there's a vacation spot rather than a homestead, et cetera, et cetera. You get lots of, you get lots of information out of it. I remember talking to Mark when he first started work on this essay, though, as he said he was absolutely – it was one of those things where he said, I just want to go – I'm going to watch Jaws again. I'm going to try and find something new. And the thing that kickstarted this project for him was that he said, everybody who eats in this movie, every human who eats in this movie dies. 
And I said, that's a fantastic observation. Now, what does it turn into? <laughs> and that's sort of, that's what ended up coming out of it. As he said, you know, the idea of hunger and things can be, can get equated to, to sort of bloodlust and, and the sort of like uh, the, the potential for dramatic and tragic ends. And this is what happened. So Quint, you know, is one of the first people to eat in the movie and he's just pounding those crackers at the town, um, the city's meeting when they're trying to figure out what to do about it. So, you know, uh, if you're looking for that trope that he's now marked for death, that his desire to go kill the beast is also signaled by his just his hunger. It's his literal hunger for those crackers. So um, I loved the way that that essay came together. Uh, Jennifer Adkison's essay on uh, Alive in the Road is is obviously about cannibalism as such. But instead of reading it just as like, oh, we have to worry about humans eating humans in, in these weird situations where it becomes – um, a necessity. She says there are still, even within those necessities, uh, different ways to conceptualize this. And so she gives us these differing visions that in Alive, you get um, the uh, the rugby players, right? Um, that who are now uh, trapped on a mountain, that they bring their faith into the discussion. And instead of talking about it as necessity, they talk about it as a certain kind of blessing that those who have died are now going to serve as, as sustenance for the other people involved. Uh, whereas in the road, there's still in McCarthy's sort of terrible future, a way to feed yourself. Um, but at the same time, there are these people who take like a really sick pleasure out of uh, victimizing other people and hoarding them and keeping them in basements uh, in the same way you might keep a, uh, you know, pigs and pens or something um, so that there are completely different ways of conceptualizing how cannibalism works in scenarios where, where someone uh, is, can make the case that cannibalism is the right way to live your life. So even uh, within cannibalism as a rubric, it gives you a, a little bit of a sense of, of how your reality is constructed by uh, your conceptual frameworks. Uh, Christian Long's essay is by far the best essay to look at because if you don't know anything about these films, when you flip through and see the pictures of the were sheep uh, in the movie Black Sheep and you see just the grotesque sort of almost B-level horror that happens in Peter Jackson's Bad Taste, that you will just be floored by it. Um, and I was, I was really delighted that he picked the best uh, pictures out of there. But that the idea that uh, Christian sorted out in there is to say that New Zealand has this very strange relationship with sheep, uh, certainly that lots of people know stereotypes about, but that even within uh, representations of how New Zealanders eat, one can read sort of the, the very distant food networks that function uh, within globalization. So Christian's essay is very, uh, ranging in terms of how it it applies this lens to understanding uh, food in bad taste and black sheep, but to talk about how farming on the islands of New Zealand that they um, have this interesting relationship between food globalization that has to do with uh, the the entrance of McDonald's sort of late into New Zealand and how governmental policy in the eighties and early nineties shaped the way that New Zealanders think about their own food production and that these two films, which may not look sort of on their surface, like they have anything to do with that are actually deeply imbricated in that. While we're on to spoilers, let's not forget that to serve mankind is a cookbook. 
we're talking about that. Um, but then, of course, the other thing related to, to this is the concept that nowadays zombie movies and TV shows have become so normal. Oh, yeah. And yet they have the same basic concept. In the end, the, the, the zombies are trying to eat people. Yeah, and this is a this is actually it's a very funny thing that I'm I'm working on in a in a book project on sort of the longer term is to talk about um, there's sort of the old zombies and then there's the new zombies and so this is this is some work that that other people have been working on about the distinction between slow zombies and fast zombies that this is a, a generational distinction that maybe has something to do with how we conceptualize being human and how we want action to take place in films i think that there's something there's something too fast zombie the fast zombie slow zombie but i'm uh since much of what i have an interest in relationship to food is the way that commodities function is that i think there's a real uh and compelling case to be made to say that sort of the the first generation zombie sort of apocalypse that happened with night of the living dead and dawn of the dead and the romero films that those zombies uh, have the potential to pose critiques of consumerism in ways that after the rise of neoliberalism the more contemporary versions of of zombies don't and i find that a very interesting way of of reading consumer anxieties uh, is by measuring their relationships to zombies. And that's to say, not to say that I've like jumped on the zombie bandwagon like many people have. Uh, I actually don't watch a ton of zombie movies, which is funny to me. Um, but nonetheless, I, the first time I saw the original Dawn of the Dead, I said, obviously this is a movie about consumerism, but what is it about this, this particular vision of consumerism that could be really compelling. And so being able to take up those sorts of things in relationship to food, it's hard not to see those relationships uh, changing in the 1970s um, because I think you can make the case for the postmodernization of food in that era, because it's in 1973, the government strikes uh, clause O in the original 1906 pure food and drug act that required that had required uh, producers to label things as imitation. So that it's, it's in 73 that you no longer have to label margarine as imitation butter and give the, the food coloring packets in order to color it. If you wanted to have yellow looking margarine. Um, and so that we now have these products that can basically be adulterated in the same way that we could read zombies as being a certain kind of adulterated human. Um, not to say that there's any direct correlation to that, but that there's certainly an interesting synergy between shifts in the consumer market and shifts in the, the film marketplace. Yeah, I think the fact that Dawn of the Dead basically takes place inside of a shopping mall is another yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I takes- mean, George Romero was not exactly being coy about it. He was pretty hitting you over the head with it. But that's no, the way and his I, but I, it's, tend I think to be. It's, it's, it's useful to remember, too, that. Um, that was still an era where our relationship with shopping malls hadn't yet been sorted out, right? So they have to have those discussions on the in the helicopter when they're flying over it where someone actually says, what is this place? Because they'd never encountered a mall before. And so there's a, a level of, of sort of like I'm giving you a prescient sort of argument to say that this isn't exactly the place. At the same time, though, I you know, there's that fantastic montage in the middle of, of Dawn of the Dead when they, they basically go shopping. And they spend so much of that uh, montage in the the gourmet food store that's inside that mall. And I, I love that picture, that fantastic image of him holding the giant loaf of bread. And he turns and has this absurd look on his face. He goes, manja. 
and they're just like delighted with their find. Um, so that even in the midst of that horror, their sort of consumer experience uh, can can be a way out of of a certain level of sadness. So, basically, then um, when when you try to take the whole the whole book together and the various essays, uh, are there any specifics that you sort of feel that came out of it that you can say um, that that sort of sums the whole thing up, or is it a matter that we're talking still? a lot of different ways of looking at food on film, but there's no easy way to sort of pull it into one overall theme. No, I think, I think that there are lessons to be learned uh, when we think about the entire book. And, and one of those lessons is certainly that how we consume is worth taking, taking time to think about, but also to, to extend those arguments that came out of like critical consumer studies of the eighties and nineties is that how we consume also determines um, our level of engagement with the world. So the the very strange experience of eating is to literally internalize the things that you buy. And so the vexed and, and sort of frustrating relationships that we have with food come from partly the consumer experience, but partly the experience of consuming food, that by taking stuff that you've worked, uh, that you've traded labor for, uh, and for money in order to trade that money for something that you can then eat. And then that you eat that, uh, closes a certain kind of loop in how we live in the world. So if there's something to be taken from all of this, though, these are all nodes, if you want to think of that on the loop of consumption. And so if anything, it's to say like, Hey, here's the starting point. We need to keep continuing. We need to continue looking at the ways that these um, these nodes can help us un- better understand those relationships between how we work, what we spend money on, what we eat, where we uh, make limits on how um, we eat, whether or not we're willing to eat anything, whether or not um, our identity is always imbricated in. Um, in our uh, experience of eating and so on and so forth. Um, just to take this outside of the context of the book, it's one of those things that I don't know if you've uh, heard about the, the the new product Soylent. It's just called Soylent. Have you heard of this? No. It's uh, so these, this is uh, the name alone would scare me, but <laughs> it's, it's, re- <laughs> it's real food for thought. Uh-huh. Uh, there we go. They, it you was, were waiting to use that one in some way. Oh, my God, you? you're telling me. And I'm, I whetted people's appetites. So there you go. <laughs> they, uh, these uh, guys graduated from Stanford as uh, business and tech majors and got a bunch of seed money in the Bay Area as seed a start. Seed money, I get it. Yeah, uh-huh. And they said, all right, we're going to make something. And they didn't know what they were going to make. So they kept working on it, kept working on it, kept working on it. And they found that their seed money would dry up pretty quickly. And one of them finally said, like, dudes, we got to find a way to save money. And plainly, we spend the majority of our daily allowances on food. How can we do this? So he went to the library and spent weeks and weeks putting this together, but decided that the th- that their invention, the thing that they needed to do to make money off of, was just to create sort of the perfect blend of absolutely essential uh, vitamins and nutrients regardless of taste, not interested in taste at all, pour a little water on it and drink it. And so to make it as cheaply as possible and to make it uh, as easy to make as possible. And so they've done this. And the, the, at the, the last time I looked on their website, it was a 12 waiting list to get on, on their subscription plan. 
And people have all these responses to it by saying like, oh, you know, you know, we, this just ruins everything. And their response is, look, you don't want to waste time eating. You've got other important things to do. So you should just drink this. It costs about six bucks a day. You spend $6 on a latte. So this is better for you anyway. And people are taking to it. The funny thing about it is they have made the, the recipe for it open source. So you can just make it a, a, on your own at home if you have a digital scale and access either on the Internet or in, in your hometown to a vitamin store. And you can put it all together to meet whatever your nutritional requirements are. They have gluten-free recipes. There are, there are over 4,000 recipes now available for it. But you order it, and the idea is it strips basically everything out of the food experience that we think of as being important. There's no cultural affect except that it has this ironic name, which they gave it and thought they were going to change, and it just stuck. And so to say that we live in an era where this is like a the we're one step shy of a meal of a, in a pill, basically. And so the sort of vitriolic responses that people are having to Soylent uh, in the New York Times, in the New Yorker, they're all fascinating because they show you how deeply invested people are in food. And that's because it's this bodily experience. And so food and film is the next closest thing to actually like talking to people about how they see things because you've been in a movie theater, you've been in a living room and watched a movie where somebody eats something. You see everybody in the room start getting queasy and freaking out a little bit because somebody's eating. Oh, I don't know the chilled monkey brains, right? From Indiana Jones. Um, And so this is one of those things that happens is that when we start thinking about these sorts of things and we put them into a relationship with one another, it's it comes to a point where we start seeing not only how important it is, but the ways that we're able to extend our understanding of something that we do two, three, four times a day, often without thinking. So to give thought to something that we often do without worrying about, I think is 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 certainly a, a privilege that I'm happy to capitalize on. To say nothing of the fact you can't walk into a movie theater without smelling food. Oh my God! You're so <laughs> it's just tied up there. But well, I mean, and then of course the social aspects of eating, the pleasure aspects, yeah. aspects of eating. I mean, if you told me that I could take a pill to eat, but I'd never be able to eat a steak again, I don't know if I'd go for that. I mean, you know, it's, it's you know, it's funny. I asked my students the other day. I said, "How many of you think eating's a hassle?" And I'd say I had about 25% of the class raise their hands when, I, and then I told them about Soylent, and some of them were like, "How do I get that?" Like, can I buy it in the store? I'm like, really? Like, this is something that you would give up? But it's funny. A whole dorm at Caltech apparently has uh, been subsisting off of it entirely. And they're all engineers. So, of course, they're delighted by it because they get to spend more time programming and things. Of course, I would ask them, how how many of you think getting food is a hassle? That's a different question. That's really the thing. And talk about your first world problems, right? Like, oh, getting food. It just appeared in front of you. Would you eat it? Yeah. Like, like restaurants. Right. That's basically the – why do you think people – I mean, I think nowadays the statistics of people going out to dinner is just so huge that part of it is the convenience part and, um, you know, and part of it is the fact that they don't want to take the time to learn how to cook, so it's easier to have somebody else do it for them. But, it's true. Um, it's absolutely true. Well, I really appreciated talking with you. We had a really great conversation. These are my favorite interviews where we get to actually have a conversation sometimes – my knowledge of a subject is enough that I feel like I can interview somebody, but this was one that you brought up some great points that 
definitely bring the topic into a into a wide range of subjects that uh, I think people will find very interesting. And overall, I'm glad that we were able to discuss food on film. And thanks for your time today, Tom. Well, I'm happy to take part. As I always say, everybody has to eat, so everybody's got an opinion about this. Except for the people that are on soil, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking to Tom Hertwick. I hope you'll consider some of the themes he discussed in the book and the interview the next time you watch a movie. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books in Film.